No Fear is a company that has been around since the 90s. Uh, On the homepage of nofear.com, there are three alternating pictures that often are part of uh, websites. One showing this BMX biker launching through the air, just soaring way above these dirt ramps. Another showing a wakeboarder getting crazy air off the water. Uh, And the other showing a trophy truck soaring above this dirt track. None of those things are safe. I'm not sure if you've done any of those things, but uh, none are safe. And yet written across the No Fear uh, webpage in huge letters is the phrase, this is my comfort zone. Now, my comfort zone is not flying through the air on some bike, you know, 30 feet uh, above some dirt track because I am very confident that that landing will not be very soft. I'm going to land hard. Um, Life isn't safe. Life isn't safe, and our landings are not always soft. Sometimes we break when we land. So instead of soaring through life with no fear, we go through life with a lot of fear because this is going to hurt. Fear can kill joy. We live scared, oftentimes because we don't really believe God. We don't really believe His promises. We don't lean on His Word and Spirit. We settle for worry instead of believing God's promises and being comforted directly from His promises. God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible, in real and practical ways with truth powerful enough to quiet a troubled soul and dispel our fears. The best remedy for a troubled and fearful heart is listening to the voice of Jesus in the Scriptures and drawing peace from Him, pulling from Him. So many people, they never experience peace. True, genuine, lasting peace in life because they don't really believe that Jesus can give it to them. But He can. He can. I promise you, that these verses can help you if you listen to Jesus and you draw peace directly from him. The truthful words of Jesus prepare us for the future. The truthful words of Jesus prepare us for the future. Think about this. What can help you face the uncertainty of tomorrow? What's going to show up to help you with that? Tomorrow is very uncertain. We don't know if it's guaranteed us. We don't know what's going to happen Awful things could happen. Great things could happen. We don't know. It's uncertain. How can we face that? And it's really easy to worry about life, to think about what could be, but we can't forget that we already know the future. We know the future. If you study your Bible carefully, you know how history ends. You know the end of this amazing story, and if you trust Jesus, it's an awesome ending for you. This ends really, really good. Jesus taught his disciples about the future. Just read the Gospels. You'll see all that he said about the coming things. Jesus said in our text this morning in verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. And that implied that he would leave them. He already said that. That he would leave them and that his words were important for them to hear. He said, listen up to this. They had heard Jesus say a lot of profound things over the course of their three years together as this motley crew, and his words prepared them for what was coming, and a lot of traumatic things were coming. 
I mean, a lot of serious things were coming, and Jesus planned it all. Every spoken word of Jesus was intentional. Every spoken word was meaningful. Every spoken word was practical. And after his resurrection, all of the mess would then make sense. It would become clear. Verses 25 and 26 tell us something very important that you have to see this morning, something that you may never have realized before if if you've read these verses. These two verses set forth a convincing argument for the authenticity, reliability, and authority of the Bible. As you believe the Bible... You believe what Jesus himself taught and what the Holy Spirit inspired. As you believe the Bible, you believe what Jesus Christ taught, what he believed, what he, what he knew was true, and then you also are, are believing in what the Holy Spirit has inspired. Now, we need to be careful with verse 26. Jesus did not say this to us, okay? This was spoken to his disciples at a unique time in history, under unique circumstances. Now, we absolutely can benefit from what Jesus said to his disciples, but we just need to be honest that he wasn't speaking it directly to us. He was speaking it to the 11. So let me read verse 26 again and then explain why it's uniquely applied to them at that time. Jesus said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now, Jesus called the Holy Spirit the helper. Now, now's the time to draw from that sermon series that we just came through, the three-part sermon series on the Holy Spirit, and, and, and apply that to what he's saying here in this passage. And this is where it gets a little tricky. Jesus was telling his 11 disciples that God would send the Holy Spirit in his name and that the Spirit would help them in a unique way. Verse 26 is not about what the Holy Spirit does to all, for all believers, though he does something similar for all believers. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do two things for them. Number one, he would teach them all things. And number two, he would bring to their remembrance all that Jesus said to them. All that he he spoke, the Holy Spirit would bring to their memory, their remembrance. The disciples heard Jesus speak and teach in person. That's unique, absolutely unique. They were eventually eyewitnesses of his death and resurrection as well. That's unique. That was for that time period. They had memories of Jesus. That's unique. See, we don't have memories of Jesus. We were not there in first century Palestine walking with him and being taught directly from his mouth. The disciples experienced firsthand what we now read in the Bible. The disciples had no iPhones. They had no video cameras. They had no digital voice recorders to capture the ministry of Jesus. They couldn't just jump online to iTunes and download all the public teaching and preaching ministry of Jesus Christ. They couldn't do that. All they had were their memories. But that's just it. Think about that. They had experienced Jesus. They had heard the mouth of God speak. His son in the flesh. They heard Jesus. They would need help then compiling all of their memories. And here is why verse 26 applies uniquely to the disciples. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come and teach them all things and bring to their remembrance 
all that he had said to them. He was speaking to them. The disciples experienced firsthand the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, along with his extensive teaching ministry. And the Holy Spirit would come to them, help them remember all that Jesus taught, make sense of all that Jesus taught, and ultimately write it down so that it could be preserved for many, 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 many years. And those who weren't there could actually get firsthand eyewitness testimony of what was taught and said and done. Not only is the Bible supernatural revelation from God, but it perfectly coincides with what real people experienced inside of real history Verse 24 is a great reason to believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is completely true. And every other competing truth claim is absolutely false. The Holy Spirit inspired the disciples to remember. The disciples did not invent Christianity. They didn't compile all their best thoughts and ideas and proverbs and put it all together to craft some new religion. The Holy Spirit caused the disciples to remember what they had heard the Son of God in the flesh teach, what they saw the Son of God in the flesh do. Even more than that, the Holy Spirit taught them all things He put within them divine truth that pulled all of redemptive history uh, together, all of the Old Testament, all of the events and teachings of Jesus into one huge, massive, awesome, cohesive whole and made sense of it all. The Spirit showed the disciples how Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament, was the Messiah, was the entire purpose and meaning of history. When the disciples received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the entire life and work of Jesus Christ were at that moment made clear. They were taught. It made sense. It no longer was veiled. This is what they proclaimed. That is what they wrote down for us. The explosive growth of Christianity in the world came through spirit-filled eyewitness testimony. That was a unique time and a unique work of the Holy Spirit in the disciples. And my question to you is, can you see that in verse 26? Can you read behind all of the history that's going into that simple verse? Keep in mind, John was one of the 11. John was at this upper room supper. John was so intimately close with Jesus. Now take verse 26 and connect it with what John wrote earlier in John 2, chapter 2, verse 22. He said this, When therefore he, Jesus, was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That's it. That's the point. Why should we believe the Bible? Simple. Because it is truth revealed directly to us from God. It's divine truth. We don't need new revelation from God. God has already spoken to us by his son that's going to Hebrews and reveals himself to us even Now, through his inspired word, the Bible, you want to hear from God? You wondering what he's saying to you? You got to crack the book, got to read the pages of his inspired, powerful word to you. The Holy Spirit helps us believe what the disciples experienced and what they proclaimed and what they wrote. After the upper room, think about it, things got much worse. Things got worse. Their hearts would grow even more troubled 
than in that safe upper room moment. And with that in mind, I want to show you two things. First, Jesus comforted his disciples with the truth. He comforted his disciples with the truth. And second, Jesus corrected his disciples with the truth. Both comfort and correction with truth. They needed reassurance at this moment, but they also needed correction because their minds weren't thinking straight in the middle of this. Jesus showed his love for them in both comfort and correction. So let's go to comfort first. Jesus gives peace to his disciples during turbulent times. He gives peace during the most turbulent of times. It was a turbulent time at that Passover supper. Think about it. Satan had possessed Judas. Entered Judas, who left to betray Jesus. The Jewish authorities were collaborating on satanic plots. Satan was at work to destroy the Son of God. Betrayal, injustice, torture, blood, and murder were all coming. They were all imminent. Satan's scheme was coming together, and Jesus was there in this upper room saying really hard things to hear. It was a turbulent time, but Jesus, he knew what was coming. He knew the future. He knew what he was in for, and yet he focused in that moment on comforting his disciples. He was able to give peace because he had peace himself. In the turbulent times. He said in verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus said, my peace, it's my peace that I give to you. That you may have it. And enjoy the benefits of it. He gave his peace. William Hendrickson referred to this peace as inner assurance which reflects the smile of God in the heart of his child. I love that, the smile of God. Hendrickson described peace as that absence of spiritual unrest and that assurance of salvation and of God's loving presence under all circumstances, which results from experiencing faith in God and in his son and from the contemplation of his gracious promises. Jesus comforted his disciples with his peace. As the disciples believed Jesus, he gave them peace, rooted in the promises of God, not in their circumstances. You need to see that. Not in their circumstances. The peace that Jesus left with his disciples transcended the turbulence of the time, transcended their circumstances. The world doesn't have true peace to give you. And any peace that the world has comes from favorable circumstances. When things are going right, then you're peaceful and the world can give you that kind of peace. But favorable circumstances are always subject to change. Isn't that right? Christ's peace, on the other hand, is independent of circumstances and therefore steady throughout change, whatever change that might be. That's really good because now we can experience a certain objective peace, a certain real, uh, a realistic peace in our lives, no matter what our circumstances are. It's in Christ. Imagine that. The world can only say peace to you as some hopeful salutation to us, as some greeting, but Jesus actually gives peace to us that we can experience that. He gives peace to those who trust him. Consider all that was going on in, the history, in this historical time, just the upheaval and the just craziness of it all. How could Jesus then say, let not your hearts be troubled? 
Neither let them be afraid. Are you even kidding me? Do you understand what's going on here? Didn't they have every reason to be afraid? Every reason to be troubled? They were emotional, and we would all look at the situation and totally justify their emotions. Guess who didn't? Jesus. He did not validate their emotions. The reason he said, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid, is because he was giving them something more powerful than their anxiety and fear, namely his peace. They could experience peace during turbulent times if he gave them his peace then they could have it. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we can all experience peace in the most turbulent and messed up of times because Jesus gave peace to his disciples in the midst of this turbulent time. But you won't really believe that. You'll hear that and be like, yeah, but not me. See, my circumstances are way different. And you won't ever really believe that until you believe that God is both sovereign over your circumstances and good and that he works all things together for his glory and your greatest good. You won't believe the promises of God until you believe that he is sovereign, that God is good, and that God works all things. And when I say all things, I mean absolutely everything that ever happened. He works for his glory and his greatest good and our joy in his glory. Faith is not some nebulous, irrational, blind, leap of faith, trust thing in something that we hope is true and exists primarily just to calm us down when things are bad. Faith is built on the authoritative truth of Jesus Christ. Faith is confidence that what Jesus said is actually true. Belief is looking at the promises of God in the midst of your circumstances and saying, I know you're going to come through because you told me that you would. So I'll believe that. I'll believe it. Even though I, I'm, it doesn't make sense, it's messy, but I'm going to believe. That's what faith is. It's believing and being confident that Christ is going to come through to do what he said. Faith is believing that Jesus gives his peace, that he calms troubled hearts and gives courage, all his gifts to us. Peace I leave with you. My peace, my peace, I give to you. That's not a cute greeting card slogan. That's not why he said that. He said that as objective truth, he gives peace for you to have and experience. And that function to comfort and strengthen the disciples. Listen to how concrete and sensible Jesus was in John 16, He told his disciples this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the, world, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That is so helpful. Thank you, Jesus, for overcoming the world. Thank you that I can take heart, and so can you. Thank you that we can trust him. That's so helpful. If you have peace, you will have peace, rather, when you're in Christ, when you trust him by faith. Life is wild Life is soaring through the air in some truck that's out of control and the landing is going to be painful. It's wild, but we can take heart as we soar because Jesus has overcome the world and we can have lasting peace in him. 
He's the peace. So often, please think about this. So often we would rather be comforted by an immediate change in our circumstances than be comforted by Christ in our circumstances. We want things to change around us rather than running to Jesus in the middle of the madness and the wildness and saying, I'll take, I'll take comfort in you. So do we love Christ for the circumstances that he creates around us or do we love Christ because of Christ, because of him, that he's all that we need? See, running to Immediate change in our circumstances is the kind of peace that the world runs after, but that kind of peace is evasive, it's elusive, it's fleeting. We won't have it. We won't grab it for very long. We want a better peace. We want something that transcends our understanding and what makes sense. The kind of peace that comes to Christ. As Christians, we just need to We need to think differently and live differently. Our peace is not in our circumstances. Our peace is solely in Christ. It is because of Christ that our hearts don't need to be unsettled and disturbed. Are you a disturbed person? Come to Christ. You don't have to be disturbed. No matter what happens to you, because in the middle of no matter what happens to you, you have him It is because of Christ that our hearts don't need to be fearful, that we don't need to be cowardly in a world that's just going crazy. We don't have to be fearful. We have Christ. Now, you may feel that you're at the end of your rope. Well, you might be at the end of your rope. Let's just be honest about that. So you can't afford to miss this point. Are you receiving peace from Christ alone through faith alone, or are you looking at your circumstances as the excuse for why you don't have peace? You have to go to Christ. Trust Christ to give you peace, and you will have peace. Jesus was comforting his disciples with the truth, what he gives them. But he also corrected them because they didn't love him like they should. He, he wanted to expose a problem in them and a solution in him. A problem in them, a solution in him. True love for Jesus expresses itself through an all-consuming desire for what's best for him, for Jesus, not what's immediately gratifying for us. True love for Jesus expresses itself through an all-consuming desire for what's best for him, not what's immediately gratifying for us. This point is tough to hear for all of us, but it will give you joy if you get it, if you really get it. So often, God's sovereign plan includes really difficult and painful things in our lives. Can we get an amen on that? I mean... His sovereign plan includes things that we don't find immediately good or gratifying in our lives. We're scratching our head over a lot, lots of stuff. God's sovereign plan contains pain and suffering for us, and we're tempted to believe in the pain and suffering that God doesn't love us. Where are you? Why aren't you helping me through this? Why didn't you change my circumstances? And we're tempted to believe in the pain and suffering that God doesn't love us when in reality, his presence in the pain and suffering are evidence that he does. Look at what God had planned for Jesus. His life was not easy breezy. Philippians 4, 7 says this, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What guards your heart? What guards your mind? 
peace of God. The peace of God, even when things don't make any sense. Because his peace surpasses understanding. It's there when things don't make sense. Let me explain. Jesus said in verse 28, You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. Now, instead of rejoicing in that wonderful, glorious reality, the future reality, they were troubled. They weren't rejoicing. They were disturbed. Their spirit was stirred up. They should have rejoiced, is what Jesus is saying. Jesus knew their hearts, and he corrected them like this. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I They did love him, right? No, not like they should have. Not like they should have. They were fixated on their current circumstances and not on Christ. They were troubled and afraid and disturbed because Jesus was leaving them. They agonized when they should have rejoiced that he was leaving them. It was time for Jesus to go and to be glorified and to return to his father. That was a really good thing, and that was really, really good for Jesus. If they loved Jesus, they would have rejoiced with tears, with tears, that he would be glorified and see his father again. What a precious truth. They're like, we're happy for you, Jesus. This is it. It's your moment to go back. Instead, they agonized. Now, What if a friend of yours was told, tomorrow you're going bankrupt and you're losing absolutely everything that you have? You're done. But in one month, you will inherit $7 million. Would you rejoice or would you fret? That one month, absolutely it's going to be hard for them. You're probably going to have to invite them over for dinner at least once. You know, they're not going to have anything. They lost a house. They had nothing. So what is going to help them endure through the hardship with joy? Isn't it the inheritance that's coming? The future glory in the $7 million? The pain of this life must always be viewed in the glorious light of the pleasure of experiencing God's glory forever. Jesus wanted his disciples to rejoice at his return to glory And don't forget, Jesus said that he'd come back to them, get them, and take them to where he was. This is a really good moment. When Jesus said, the Father is greater than I, he's not implying that he wasn't God or he wasn't equal with the Father. Plenty of passages reveal the absolute divinity and equality of the Son of God with the the Father. God, Jesus was highlighting the authority and leadership of his Father There is a hierarchy in the Trinity. The Son is eternally begotten by the Father. The Son submits to the Father. The Son was humbled in His his, uh, earthly state as a suffering servant, and the Father was full in His glory. And so Jesus was both equal to the Father, and yet He was submissive to the Father. The Father was greater than than He, yet He was one with the Father. Jesus challenged His disciples. He He addressed their wrong response. And and I just want you to see the the tenderness of Jesus for right thinking. Because in the middle of like this crazy time, he's concerned about the, the, the nuances of their emotions and how they're thinking. And he's like, I need to say that. You don't love me like you should. Really? You're going to bring that up right now? But that's because he's fighting for a greater joy in him. 
He wants them to think right thoughts because their joy and rejoicing is tied directly. Instead of being rejoicing and, and experiencing joy, they're troubled in spirit. And he saw that. He wants joy, and so he's going to correct them. When you don't focus on Jesus, joy is elusive. It's fleeting. I believe Jesus was addressing anxiety or future anxiety in his disciples. Jesus was helping them handle their troubled hearts. How do you make sense of that? How do you get through that? He's helping. He was living out Proverbs 12, verse 25. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. And what was Jesus doing? He was preaching good words that were making the hearts of his disciples glad, that had the power to give joy in the midst of the circumstances. That was good. Now, how can we possibly rejoice when life falls apart? Sovereign grace. We need sovereign grace. To rejoice in the Lord always. He didn't say rejoice in the Lord when things are going well. And when they fall apart, curse his name. That's not at all what's biblical. Rejoice in the Lord always. We need God's love because the scripture tells us perfect love casts out fear. We will rejoice in all circumstances when we deeply love Christ and trust him. He said, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. The rejoicing of verse 28 is contingent on the disciples loving Christ. True joy that transcends circumstances derives from loving Christ. John 15. John, we're headed there next week. And John 15 is going to unlock for us power, power to love and rejoice like this. You don't want to miss chapter 15 Because there is power in that chapter and there is great encouragement for you in that chapter to love just like this, to have that peace that you so desperately crave, to get the most out of this sermon series, study the chapters on your own, study ahead of time, know where we're going, get into chapter 15 this week, do your own work and then see what you come up with. Loving Christ is so advantageous for us and one advantage of that Jesus builds our faith. The prophetic words of Jesus serve to build our faith in him. There is a position in the army called an EOD specialist, explosive ordnance disposal specialist. These guys research uh, where explosives are and they go disarm them before they detonate and kill American lives. They serve an important role in our military. Let's say you possess top secret information I wish we had music to cue. You've got it. And you're on the run. And the enemies are pursuing you. And you're, you're almost in the safety. But as you come, there's a minefield that you have to cross to get to safety. So you either cross that minefield or get captured and tortured by the enemy. What's going to happen? But see, the good news is right at your side is an EOD specialist. And he tells you, trust me. And step exactly where I step. I know where the minds are. I will lead you through. Now at that moment, in some great swell of pride and independence, do you run your own way? You push the EOD out of the way? I got this. You know, you don't. You're done. He knows what's out there. He knows how to get through. And he knows how to get you through. Jesus revealed critical information to his disciples so that they could navigate all the coming events that were right there. They were coming. 
Verse 29, and now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Jesus was absolutely confident that what he said happened, what he said would happen, would indeed happen. He prophesied the truth, and because he did, he revealed his divine foreknowledge. He did so that they would see, that they would understand And that they would believe in him, perfectly fulfilled prophecy builds faith. We see tons of it in God's word. Look there to see fulfilled prophecy. Everything Jesus said would turn out, it would be as he said it. Jesus was absolutely right, which confirms his messianic identity and provides a firm foundation for our faith. As the great hymn says, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in what? In his excellent word. Everything Jesus said is excellent and true. Imagine what it did for the disciples' faith when they experienced exactly what Jesus said would happen. God created in them faith so strong that they gave their lives for the gospel. This matters to you, Jerusalem church. God has unfolded for you the ending of history. In the pages of his book, the Bible, you have the information that you need to trust in Christ. In the Bible, you have what you need. It's sufficient. Look there. Study it closely so that you can see precisely what's going to happen so that you know the promises of God and that you can enjoy and draw strength from him. And you have what you need and he supplies you with what you need. Go to the scripture to find out how it ends for you, what eternal glory hopefully awaits you. If you trust in Christ, it will be yours. The prophetic words of Jesus are meant to build your faith in him. His, his prophetic words will comfort you and correct you a thousand times over if you carefully study and believe his words. Chapter 14 is closed out with Jesus' words of supremacy and victory. He said to them, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus is sovereign, and his sacrificial death displays his radical love for and obedience to God. He's sovereign, and his sacrificial death on the cross displays his radical love for and obedience to God. The time had come for them to part. It was the end. Satan was coming. He was the ruler of the world in the sense that he leads this great rebellion of everyone who is opposed to Christ. He's leading them in that charge to oppose Christ And all those who were hostile to him, Satan had possessed Judah. Satan was working in and through the Jewish leaders and the temple police. Satan was coming to kill Jesus. But Jesus said something profound in verse 30. He said, he has no claim on me, which literally means he has nothing in me. No claim. Satan's got no claim or power over Jesus. Jesus is entirely above reproach. He is entirely without evil and darkness. And anything that would be a spot on his record, Satan's got nothing on Jesus. Some people believe that Satan essentially is sovereign and that Satan is in control. And they might not say that, but that's what they believe, that God cannot stop certain things that Satan desires to have done, that God's hands are tied, that Satan does as he wishes, and all of these evil things, man, God doesn't want that. He, he, he clearly, you know, it's Satan doing these things. That's making the point that Satan is sovereign over these things. And they arrive at this conclusion in part because of the difficulty of evil. How do we make sense? How do we we reconcile evil with a good 
and sovereign God, and that creates this unrest in us. But don't miss verses 30 and 31. Though Satan was at work orchestrating his heinous plot, God was still in control. Even the works of Satan were contributing directly to the accomplishment of God's sovereign plan and work of redemption, of sending his son for the purpose of dying on the cross. That's clear in the scripture. Satan has absolutely no authority or power over Jesus. Even though Satan worked to betray Jesus and ultimately have him killed, the crucifixion is God's plan of redemption and was an act of obedience of Christ. Satan was not in control. Christ was. Jesus said, but I do as the Father has commanded me. Well, what did he do? He suffered and he went to the cross, willingly. Redemption was accomplished through Christ's obedience to the Father, which included his horrific suffering on the cross. That was not Satan's victory. That was Christ's obedience. Satan did not sovereignly force Jesus to the cross. Jesus went willingly and offered himself up, and that's called sovereign grace. God's in control. The cross is proof that God is sovereign and works all things, even evil, even the heinous crucifixion of his son for his glory according to his plan and decree. Can you see that even evil is part of God's sovereign plan? And if you struggle with that, my encouragement to you is look to the cross. Don't you see it there? Look to the cross. And when Jesus went to the cross to endure the wrath of God, he revealed in his death his extravagant love for his father. His life was consumed with pleasing his dad. Every day was Father's Day for Jesus. In the blood-soaked cross, we hear the cry of Jesus, I love you, Dad. This is the extent I'm willing to go to prove my love for you. These verses contain comfort and peace for you. They do. Do you need comfort and peace right now? Do you need solace? You're getting beat up? Then meditate on these verses. Take them to heart and believe every word of them because they're true for you if you trust Christ. Receive peace directly from Christ because he's got his peace to give you. Study these words to see how all of them work together to give you peace and to quiet your troubled heart. I wonder if your heart is closed to receiving the peace of Jesus Christ right now. The comfort of Christ. Maybe you've shut God out for some reason. Maybe you're shutting him out by avoiding Bible study. You're just shutting his promises out. You're shutting his voice of truth. You're just putting it on the shelf. You got nothing. You're listening to the world. Maybe you're shutting him out that way. Maybe you've shut God out by avoiding the scriptural counsel and comfort and encouragement of other believers. You just withdraw from people. Keep them at a distance. So my question to you Dear friend, will you turn to Christ for comfort? Will you open the pages of sacred scripture and receive the words and promises of Christ which can give you peace? Don't silence the voice of God in your life by failing to pick up your Bibles to listen. Find your peace in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you all the glory and all the thanks for what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. He is brilliant. He is beautiful. We love him. And and we want to sing for him now. And we want to praise you. And so, God, I pray that as we sing, holy, 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 that we will be all struck at your holiness and at your son and all that you have provided. It is because you are holy, holy, holy that we can experience peace in your holy son. In his name we pray. Amen.